We are going to be, obviously, in the book of Ephesians this morning. I guess I don't have it up there. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. As we kick this off, I, I want to tell you that I'm incredibly amazed at how God has, has developed the human body so that it has the ability to heal itself of most things. I know that there are exceptions to that, but uh, I've received a number of boo-boos over my life, and I'm sure that you have too. I've had broken bones, been to the emergency room, had a couple of hospital stays. And overwhelmingly, when I receive my health back, there is this deep sense of gratitude for that which, I, that, that which was lost for a moment. Can you relate to that, right? Uh, when, when I'm healed and when I'm whole, there, there's a deep sense of appreciation for what I had initially taken for granted. A, because it's fixed, but B, because I recognize that that which I formerly took for granted was a gift, and I received it back. And there's part of me that really wants to protect it after that, and so I changed the way that I do things. A few of those times I've been injured and received my health again, I immediately changed the way that I did life because I, I valued the renewed gift of wholeness so much that I wanted everything in my power to, to be done to protect that, that part of my health. And you've had this happen, uh, haven't you? in your own life. And maybe it was with your health, but maybe it was with something else. Maybe it was an attitude or a relationship that you had with somebody that was fractured or broken in a particular way. And then for whatever reason, God maybe healed it or somebody apologized and that relationship was healed again. And, or maybe it was something else, right? Maybe uh, you have a special heirloom that has been passed down from generation to generation to gener generation. And somehow it got broken. And it was beyond your repair, but somebody more skilled than you came along and mended it and made it whole and brought it back into a unified state. And your attitude toward that thing shifted in such a way that deep appreciation became the driving emotional stance toward whatever it was that was broken. And I was surprised as a father to see that this concept even applied uh, to, to the relatively little things inside of my family. For example, about two months ago, my youngest, Levi, 12 years old, broke his pinky finger on his left hand. And I was amazed that, that, uh, that I took into myself just this, this idea of, of hurt and longing for him to be whole. I had never given it a second thought in my life that that pinky finger had been whole ever since he came out of the womb until all of a sudden it was broken. And yeah, there were some times that we had to spend in, in urgent care, you know, several hours there and out a couple hundred dollars. But we went back to the doctor a couple of weeks back and took an x-ray and it was whole again. And so there's part of me that was just deeply appreciative of, what, uh, of that wholeness that he had in his body again. And there's part of me that wants to protect that. And I think when we look at this next section of Ephesians, Paul's instructions to us are going to be motivated by that which was broken, becoming whole again, and how that should motivate us to be different because of a deep appreciation for what we have. So we're in this, uh, we're in this series in Ephesians that we've entitled An Out-of-This-World Life, and we're in an interesting section in Ephesians because it's like the dead middle of Ephesians, right? And it's almost like we're walking through a door. The first three chapters have been about all of God's blessings, how He's blessed us in the heavenly realms, how He has given us this amazing family, how He's 
how he uh, has given us an out-of-this-world life and, and, and this new family. And, and we're about to walk through a door in chapter 4, verse 1, where it's about now, what is your response to this out-of-this-world life and all of these blessings that he's given to us? And I just want to take a minute just to read the passage. So this is Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The word of the Lord through Paul to the Ephesians and to us. Amen? He kicks this passage off with a couple of interesting words. He says, I urge you. Right? I urge you. And this is not just a suggestion or a recommendation. It's this, this urging, uh, begging, and there's this underlying sense of a command of what he's about to tell us and what he's urging us to do. And what is he urging us to do? The next word up there is to walk. Right? He's urging us to walk in a particular way. And you know this intuitively already, but this is not about just taking a stroll. This is not about just walking and, and hoping that my feet get to the right place. This is something, and it, it's certainly not about just checking something off of a box, right? This is something that he wants us to do that is going to increase who we are, increase our godliness in a particular direction. So he's urging us to walk in a particular way. And what is that way that he wants us to walk? He wants us to walk in a way that is worthy, worthy. What is a worthy response to what God has done to us and all of these blessings that he's given to us? And it's this interesting little word in Greek that is akin to what it means to have a scale, right? And you can think like old-timey scale that uh, maybe Lady Liberty is holding in her hands. If something is heavier on one side, it's going to throw that scale out of skew. And so God has blessed us, and he has skewed that scale in a particular direction. And we know that we're never going to balance that scale out. That's not what this is about. It's about what is an appropriate response and what is a worthy response to what God has given to you. It's like he says, what Paul will say in Philippians 1.27. He'll say, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, it's not about earning your way. It's about what's appropriate now that he has blessed you. And so what does a worthy response look like? It says, I want to be a part of your family. I want to do what you've created me for. I want to live a life that you want me to live. Walking worthy demands this positional attitude that says, I respond to your out-of-this-world gifts more completely than what my fleshly nature would normally do. And so he's going to give us three words as we progress through this, as what a worthy response looks like and walking worthy looks like. He's going to say it looks like this, humility, gentleness, and patience. Humility, gentleness, 
and patience. And I know that these, these three words, they are not words that are, that are foreign to any of us in here, probably especially because we come in contact with them a lot inside of our Christian walk. But I think it's worthy to break them down just a moment, uh, a little bit here in this moment for, for the context. Humility. Again, you get this, but it means don't be full of yourself, right? And what's interesting about this is that the Greeks and the Romans didn't have a word to talk about this as being a virtue. The word was typically used as a negative attribute. This instruction that Paul is giving to the Ephesians and thus to us, it's countercultural to the reader's experience. I want to ask you the question Is it countercultural to your experience? Is it counter personality to your experience to live and walk in a humble way? It's about knowing who you are, really, is what this is about. It's, it's a recognition that I am not God. Kingdom and power and glory are not ours to grasp at. Let God have his rightful place, but it's also about how I treat my brothers and sisters. In Philippians 2, Paul will say, I want you to consider other people better than yourself. Next word that he's going to use is the word gentle, and you may have it translated in your version as meek, because it is the word that's, same word that's used for meek in, in other places. And I think we think of the word meek, and we associate it a lot of times with the word weak, like it's some sort of demure person who would never hurt a fly, who would just go with the flow of everything. And that's not what this is about. The idea here is to recognize your strength, not to let it atrophy, not to amputate it out of your system, but to recognize it. And like a very skilled swordsman, right, you have the ability to be dangerous with that. But the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, you never take that sword out of its sheath and go into battle. This is about wherever you have a greater strength, whether it's physical or relational or intellectual, you rein that in and use it to protect especially your brothers and sisters as you're inhabiting this personality trait. It's an attitude that's best summed up, I think in my opinion, in this idea of self-control. And this is how Jesus conducted himself 100% of the time. The next word he's going to use is patience. Being long in your temper. Long-suffering, maybe you have it in your translation. In other words, don't let your irritations and your confusion or your lack of all-knowing insights get the better of you and interrupt the relationship. And again, this is in the context of family here, so especially with your brothers and sisters. Be long-suffering with your brothers and sisters. Endure the hard things. Be patient and wait. And I think Abraham is probably the perfect example of this from the biblical narrative. God comes to Abraham, and he says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. Did that happen the next day? No. He waited a solid decade before he even had a glimpse of what that looked like. He was patient and waited on God, even though he might have been a little bit confused as to what that was going to look like. I'm probably a lot confused. See, all of these character traits and concepts behind these words, they're going to make you look different than the world that is around you, aren't they? And this one is no exception. In a world and a culture 
that demands immediate gratification and satisfaction for all of our desires, when you're waiting on the promises of God, you're going to look a little bit crazy to them. And I want you to hear me say it very, very clearly. You're not. You're not. When you wait on God, the underlying message that you're giving to everybody that's around you is all that I have, all that I can do, all that I am is entrusted to God, and His promises are trustworthy. And this is the attitude that He says to have with your brothers and sisters as well, right? And He finishes this up with saying, bear with one another in love. These initial instructions close with bearing with each other in agape love. Why? It's what God did with you. It's what God did with me. And you're going to notice that all of these attitude descriptors are all about becoming more godly in who you are. These words are character traits of Jesus himself. And so why these words? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And I think the answer is because these ideas and these attitudes help develop and sustain relationship and unity in this family that God has given us. That's why we see in verse 3 this very statement. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And Paul is going to focus in really hard on unity here in a moment and talk about seven things that are unified because they are one. And he's just finished talking about unity at the beginning. So unity at the beginning, unity at the end. Why do you think that unity is so fundamental to Paul's theology at this particular juncture? To answer that, I want to take a tour with you of both unity and brokenness from the biblical perspective. But actually, to kick this off first, I want us to pause and just consider the world where we are right now. When I look out at the world and I see the state that certain things in this world are in, I, I don't think unified oftentimes, do I? Maybe you're different, but I don't think unified a lot of times when I look out at the world. There is brokenness and there are divisions all over the place, and you have your own imagination for this, but here's a quick list from me. Politics, ethnic, cultural, and country divides. Those are all over the place. We know families who have been together for, uh, for a long time that, that just seem to fall apart sometimes. Even our bodies seem to be very corruptible. War, disease, hurt on every corner. And I begin to wonder, can wholeness and unity even exist in this world? And I want you to hear me very, very clearly as I make this next statement. All of this brokenness that we see, it was never meant to be that way. It was never meant to be that way. Consider the narrative with me. God, before time, he was unified in relationship with himself. He created everything and he called it good. He walked in perfection, unified with humankind. Even when he divided mankind into man and woman, he brought them back together in unity. And for a time before humans and evil abused and selfishly chose, 
to alter the format of God's good creation. Everything in heaven and on earth was unified. And this was the intent from the beginning. At least through one lens, we're looking through the Scripture. We're looking through the Scripture from Genesis to Jesus, searching for who or what will bring unity back into the system that you and I helped to break. Because as we know, it didn't stay unified very long, even in the biblical narrative, did it? When Adam and Eve ate of the tree, their relationship was fractured. Intimacy and vulnerability needed to be covered because of their shame. God's relationship with man, it was fractured. They hid from God. Man's relationship with God's good world was fractured as they had to exit out of the garden, and he cursed the ground heaven and earth. They could no longer inhabit the same place, and a fracture between brothers leads to the death of Abel. Cities and walls and wars and selfishness reigned so much that the world was in such a state of brokenness, it needed a fresh start with the flood. But even that fresh start didn't last too long, did it? Because man, he was trying to be God. Nations had to be separated at Babel. Even the unity of a nation that God designed himself, Israel, didn't last too long as far as the scope of history is concerned. It split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and then there was exile number one, and then there was exile number two. It's a story of brokenness and fractures and disease. And I think of Paul in Romans chapter 7. He's talking about his own body, but I can't help with, with, with the words. Says, Who's going to save me from this body of death is what I think of when I think of the story of brokenness through the biblical narrative. But there was one who would challenge that, isn't there? Jesus. He was the solution to the fractures. He enters into the picture, and he starts mending things that were broken doesn't he? He ministers to broken hearts. He ministers and heals broken bodies, broken spirits, broken relationships. He's touching and healing the untouchable. And then on the cross, as his ministry is complete, as he hangs there and says, it is finished, it is complete, we wonder, is this the end for the unity bringer? Ah, but he walks out on the third day, and the last piece of a broken world begins to be healed as he defeats death itself. He ascends into the heavens, spirit is poured out, and the parts of humanity that would come to God through Jesus, they would be unified once and for all under the name that is above every name, Jesus himself, to which we get the unity of the church. You see, everything, all, is unified under Christ's finishing work. That's why unity is so important to Paul and so important to God himself. And it is worth protecting and celebrating with everything that we are. And this is a part of the cosmic mystery that Paul was talking about all the way back in chapter 1 when he wrote, he made known to us the mystery of His will. And as you parse that out there at the bottom of the screen, the mystery of His will is to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite a few things? No. To unite some things? 
to unite most things? No, what does he say there? He says to unite all things. Uh, We need, church, to be instruments of unity, especially among each other. We should walk as Jesus walked. This is what a worthy walk looks like. Make unity a preeminent priority in our system. This is going to require me, if I do this, it's going to require me to make some changes or to do some self-examination in my own life. Things that my fleshly nature holds near and dear to my identity. Things like having my own way and winning every argument that I get into. That's going to have to go away. Associating too closely with any group, political or otherwise, that, is, that isn't Christ's body. I'm going to have to lose parts of my pride, especially when it gets in the way of relationship with other Christians. And a question I might want to pause and ask myself in this moment is, what am I doing that is standing in the way of an out-of-this-world oneness that Paul is asking me to pursue? And so I think it's just a worthy exercise to take just a minute and do some self-examination. Is there something that is standing in the way that you're doing that's preventing an out-of-this-world unity that God himself has established? Are you thinking of somebody? Are you thinking of a situation? Maybe it's an argument that you had with somebody. Maybe it's forgiveness that you need to offer somebody. Maybe it's compassion that you need to apply in a certain situation where you haven't been doing it. What is it that's standing in the way? Paul's going to close this section out with this, what I call the sevenfold unity statements, right? This is a celebration. It's a confession of that, of God, of the things of God that are unified in him. And, and just this, this uh, outpouring of, of joy of of what is unified. I want to read it to you again. This is uh, chapter 4, verses 4 and following. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's one body. There's one body. You look to the left, you look to the right, This is the body. I understand. It expands much further than than these walls. It's all over the world. But this is what God has given us in the here and now. It is the church. It is the new humanity under Christ. There's one spirit. It's a singular spirit that's poured out, not just for the Jews on Pentecost, but to all people that would walk the path of Jesus. There is one hope. It's a living hope. One day. It's the hope that one day everything will be made right. There's one Lord who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. He is the one that has said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and he is the one that is seated at the right hand of God. There is one faith. It's no longer a faith for just a Jewish people but a faith that is opened up to all people. And all over the world, the tenets of that faith are the same. It's unified. There is one baptism. 
There is no question of whether it is a baptism of John, a baptism of Jesus, or some other ceremonial washing. There is one baptism into the name of Jesus Christ himself where we, where we would receive the Spirit. And there is one God and Father of all. In this place of unity, there are no more ethnic divides. There are no more cultural divides. There are no more living for me and my tribe. We all come from a single spiritual parentage. It is the recognition that we are all made from one Father who has created us in His own image. And even after we distorted that image, He's working to reform us into His perfect image bearer who is Jesus Christ. And so the question that Paul leaves us with is, are you pursuing this? Are you pursuing this with your very being? Because Jesus has done the finishing work to bring unity back to that which was broken. Here's the tension, though. The tension is where we started out this unity conversation. The tension is is that I look out at a world and I see things that are broken all around me, but we do look forward to a day when all things will be put back to right, when all things will be unified. And to this I want to say, while we wait for that day to come, what we're doing here in this place, in this very service right now, as a group of Christian believers and as a family that I call you brother and sister, it's all that more important. Because you're proclaiming to all of creation what it's headed toward, what it's headed toward. See, you've been made whole. I've been made whole. We were broken like the world around us, and He healed us. And in the sanctifying process, we're still being formed into the image of His Son. So while we wait, let's be people who pursue peace and unity with each other in humility, in gentleness, in deep patience, bearing with each other in love. And this is a moment, right? Like we had before a little bit, this is a moment that I want to hold up a mirror to myself and ask myself the question, what do I need to do with my brothers and sisters in this place to celebrate and protect the out-of-this-world unity that God has gifted us? Or even what am I doing that's standing in the way of that? Is it a complaining attitude? Again, is it forgiveness I had somebody come up to me after first service and say, hey, what do I do if I don't really like somebody, though? I get it. Nobody ever said that this was going to be easy. We just said that it was something that we want to pursue that is of preeminent importance to us, right? Somebody that I don't like, I'm, I'm going to have to wait in patience. I'm going to have to pray about that. I'm going to have to uh, look internally to make sure that, that I have the right attitude toward that person. I'm going to have to offer those situations oftentimes up to God. Uh, what do we need to do to have a greater unity in this place? When we see the wholeness, that unity, that shalom, Let's be deeply appreciative and deeply motivated to maintain it. 
And as we consider that God has unified everything in Christ and brought them back together into wholeness, don't forget how huge that is. It was a task that nobody else could do. Things were bad. Things were really bad. They were irreparable. When we look around and we see some things and people and circumstances that are broken, it's still easy for us to lack imagination of what God can do in that situation and determine for ourselves something along the lines of not even God can fix that. Not even God can put that family back together. That's division in the congregation. Not even God can fix that particular situation, whatever it is in your mind. Let me remind you, that was the universe's sentiment as Jesus hung on the cross. Not even God can fix that. But he walked out. Three days later, he walked out and he was whole. So let's be encouraged. Even when I can't see how God is going to put this, whatever it is, back together again, he can still do it. Let's preserve it. Let's protect it. Let's celebrate it with everything that we are when unity is gifted to us. Because, you know, sometimes God will put something back together into wholeness and unity in ways no one could ever imagine. Sometimes the wounds and brokenness of the past become a beautiful story of God's redemptive nature. Remember Jesus' body. Post-resurrection, it was whole. It was unbroken. It was unified. And yes, it was perfect. But those scars still remained. To that I want to say, thank God they did. Because they told, uh, told the world of a love that would experience all of the pains and brokenness that this world had to offer so that we could be together as one. Church, let's be a church that pursues unity and whatever that means with each other. Maybe it's something that you need to do. Maybe it's something that you need to pray about. Maybe it's something that you need to sit there and meditate with for a while of what it means to be more unified with the body of Christ in this place. And maybe you're at a place that you recognize, me personally, I'm broken. I need to be put back together. I need to be made whole again. To that, we want to come alongside you we want to pray with you. We want to counsel you. We want to lead you deeper into relationship with the body as well as into the scripture and with God himself. Or maybe you've never put Jesus on in baptism. You recognize that you're broken and you need the wholeness that only he can offer. Well, he is the only way. If you have any need this morning... Maybe you need to confess that you haven't been a part of the unity that you'd like to be. We're going to sing a song right now. If you'd come while we stand and sing, respond to the message. <laughs>